Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's the Wonky Show. We'll take a look at the investigation into Trinity Hall, Cambridge. The UPP Foundation has been doing some polling on public attitudes to HE. Uh, UUK is gearing up for its big admissions review, and OFS has new insights into the NSS. It's all coming up. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't pinpoint the exact year, but I mean, certainly <laughs> it was, it was in the era of David Willits. Uh, you know, the Spice Girls were in the charts. Like, it was, you know, the <laughs> there was, there was actually there, there exists in the in the kind of archive of, of higher education policy internetry a a map of cold. Welcome to the Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm Jim Dickinson and here to help us navigate the winding lanes of higher education policy. As usual, we have some brilliant guests. Uh, In London, Justine Andrews, Market Director for Education and Skills at KPMG. Justine, your highlight of the week. Oh, two highlights, I think, actually. One is um, not getting flooded early in the week. I live in York, so despite a call from the Environment Agency asking me to move my furniture upstairs, my house remains unscathed. So I think that's actually probably my key highlight. And in York, Pete Quinn, independent higher education consultant. Pete, your highlight of the week, please. Well, also not being flooded was the highlight of the week. Um, but I, I was in Paris this week, uh, standing at the top of the Eiffel Tower with my daughter, which was pretty good. But that's not work related. So I would say spending last week in Bath with colleagues from Amoshi at an event about their mental health charter, uh, which was a, a really superb event and caught up with lots of great people there. And in the East Midlands this morning, Wonky's editor, Debbie McVitie. Debbie, your highlight of the week. Uh, well, I was neither in Paris nor in Paris. But uh, I was I was in Belfast at the weekend for a, a very good friend, school friend's wedding, um, and it was lovely to catch up catch up with old friends and make some new ones. Excellent. So yes, we start this week with the investigation from Chris Cook and Ella Hill at Tortoise Media into sexual misconduct at Trin- Trinity Hall, Cambridge, and beyond. It's part of a series under the hashtag Campus Justice and has been constructed from months of reporting into the handling of sexual misconduct cases on campuses at UK universities. Debbie, give us some of their bullets. We've been predicting the sector's Me Too moment. For for, for quite quite a long time now, and, and this this could be it. So, uh, tortoise journalists have been doing incredibly in depth investigation into uh, the scale of sexual misconduct and and, and and some very detailed work on a particular set of incidences at, at Trinity Hall, Cambridge. It's, it's probably you know it's, it's very much worth going and reading the reading the ac- actual article because because there's lots lots of complexity here. But it, in in some ways, it boils down to I think the uh, perhaps a, a lack of of uh, developed thinking um, at the college level, um, with Trinity Hill being the example in this case, about how to deal with cases of sexual misconduct. And this particular instance involves student-on-student alleged sexual, sexual misconduct, uh, uh, a, a senior tutor with, with relationships going in, in different ways that potentially compromised uh, their ability to, to engage with the case. And, and actually, in, across the piece, just uh, a, a, a lot of people involved with, with arguably responsibilities that uh, they did not discharge fully. 
um, over a number of years. So, I mean, it, it, it's incredible. Uh, but there's another piece as well, and that is uh, focused on the uh, uh, policies and procedures around uh, sexual harassment and misconduct um, at universities at, at large. And, uh, and the investigation found uh, a couple of slightly potentially kind of distressing issues. One being that there seemed to be an expectation in a number of universities that uh, complaints would be settled on an informal basis and 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 not without effort being taken to exclude specifically sexual misconduct from that from that sort of regime so in some cases it seemed that a student would be expected to approach or contact uh, their the, the person that they uh, had a problem with um which, which is not ideal and the other one was about uh, setting time limits on the you know as, as low as 15 days in one case for how, how soon a student could could bring a, a complaint of sexual misconduct a sort of sort of statute of limitations so obviously there's all, there's, there's, there's all stuff going on here, but it does really raise the question, given that the Changing the Culture report came out three years ago and universities have been supposedly doing kind of big efforts, you know, we've written about them on Monkey, to really A, change the culture around sexual harassment and misconduct, but B, sort out these policies and procedures, uh, deal with questions about if it happens off campus, is it our responsibility? Um, you know, there's legal advice exists on this. The fact that these things don't seem to be sorted out yet is, is a little bit incredible. Justine, you, uh, you, you, you've read it. I mean, I don't know about you, but I mean, I, my, my, my jaw was on the floor at several points, you know, throughout the course of the of, of the of the kind of core article on Tortoise this week. Yeah, I, I think it's got the hallmarks, hasn't it, of you've got an iniquity of power um you know going back to debbie's comments about me too um and where you've got that sort of uh, imbalance it, it, it is a, a tinderbox isn't it across the sector i think potentially the interesting thing for me reading it was was actually the the role of governance and again just picking up on on debbie's point you know it it's it, is this being discussed um at board level um across the sector is the space in the agenda how do you make the space in the agenda to look at these things to say actually this is something we do need to address we do need to look at the policies um you know and maybe this is the moment where where we do need to clear that space because it it's so um there's so much for boards to cover i think this can get lost yeah and 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 i think i mean there is one of the characteristics of the of, of the kind of tortoise case pete is this idea that you know the that the kind of governing body of Trinity Hall is is small, is independent to some extent of the main university, and and I guess the you know the, the charge that is levelled here is that you know these people are all fairly close, know each other, and can't be independent. You know, we, are we moving to a point where it becomes actually really difficult for a university to say that it's investigated its own staff? In, in the same way that perhaps, you know, political parties and parliament, for example, have all had to start to move to independent investigations. I, I think it's, yeah, I, I don't think it's a case of of, uh, of if, but when. I mean, th- this is a tiny college, um, which it, uh, colleges are a, a microcosm kind of university anyway, so their governance structure is tiny. The idea that an independent investigation could happen within a college is... Um, is a bit suspect whether it could happen within a collegiate university potentially with with such kind of crossover is another thing and i think one of the key elements that that i mean i i echo what justine said about governing bodies but i think every governing body should have a read of this article and just have a little think about what would happen in our context but what um this shows is that the predominant response for many institutions is to deal with it in a ter- in in terms of protecting the institutional reputation and that's come out of a lot of research around um, 
initiatives to combat sexual harassment um it's kind of the the idea that flaws must be airbrushed out um and we mustn't see them and we mustn't hear about them it's not excusing by any stretch you know the the failure to investigate and particularly the failure to support victims of harassment and abuse and and uh, but it is really hard i think for institutions to change their thinking you know you know 5 years ago the idea that this was endemic, I mean, the, um, well, the, actually, I tell a lie, the hidden mark, the NUS hidden marks report, which is referred to in the, in the, one of the, or Tortoise articles, a decade old, yeah. But, you know, you know, and, and, and many universities, so, I mean, a, a good example is, is sexual liaisons or, or, or uh, between staff and students. I mean, in the, it, it really wasn't that long ago, and some universities still hold that, you know, a relationship between consenting adults is is none of our business, and this is this this is not an area we should be getting into. And of course, the article points out that that does not take account of the potential for enormous power imbalance and um, an exploitation that can occur in that in in that situation. And you know, it's that kind of thing about you know we don't feel equipped to judge, and and it's and it's complicated and it's messy, and there are going to be consequences if the people involved are quite distinguished. Or um, and it you know I, I suppose it's just sort of easier, isn't it to to hope it goes away because because there's a power imbalance there and um and upsetting upsetting that um you know ups, upsetting that system or challenging it um i mean there's a really interesting instance of an academic who who felt very strongly at, at, at trinity hall that um you know the, the as reported that um he felt quite strongly that the college needed to do more and the university needed to do more and he was a champion for kind of uh, for survivors of harassment and abuse um and he was very much it seems marked out as someone who was problematic and making trouble and causing stress and paperwork and you know that's there's a sort of institutional kind of inertia that just sort of takes over in these situations and it's not right but i, I guess it's what happens Good, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. My name's Paul Gotrix and I'm registrar at the University of Nottingham but also contributing editor to Wonky and this week I've uh, written a blog all about cheating in higher education which is one of the things of course I've banged on about for years but this piece is really arguing that what the UK government should do is follow the Australian government not in terms of uh, points-based systems for immigration but actually in terms of legislation to address the corrupt and shady practices of those companies that exploit exploit vulnerable students and uh, promote services which enable students to cheat. Uh, This is a pernicious and wide-ranging set of activities which impact badly on our sector. It's an international problem and requires national legislation to address. Other countries have done it, Ireland, New Zealand and now Australia, and it's time the UK government cracked down on the thing that really matters uh, to universities, which is these uh, terrible cheating services. So I'm hoping that the new minister is uh, is listening and that uh, we will see before too long some new legislation to tackle the SA mill cheats. Technology might be part of it, but really what we need is actually legislation to stop these corrupting, sinister, profiteering, exploitative SEMLs. Now, the UPP Foundation has released polling this week into public perception of universities, building on its work on civic universities. Justine, can you uh, lead us through some of the highlights? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you can't really open a newspaper um, at the moment, can you, without seeing the sort of buzzwords of levelling up and left behind places and uh, other alliterative phrases beginning with Al. I'm sure Boris will think of a few more. Um, but ahead of the new Civic University Commission report due in the spring, um, UPP have published results of polling, looking at the role of universities in that, that agenda, really, in, in, the, in the civic agenda. I think the statistics are probably not 
surprising on the whole. So 30% of city dwellers say the local area is improved versus 17% of small towns, which is reflecting, I think, the, you know, the story of the election, really. Regarding universities, some interesting findings. So a third of people, 36%, have never visited their local universities, rising to 41% in the C2DE sort of demographic which actually I, I thought was 59% of that group have, which is sort of, you know, it's, it's disappointing and positive at the same time. 59% want universities to play a greater role in the economy, um, which is, is, is good, is positive. Um, I'm not sure what the other um, group uh, want universities to do in this role. And by 2%, two, two to one majority, people want graduates to return to their home communities, which, uh, you know, um, we can discuss. One of the conclusions um, is the way for universities to fulfil their civic role is to be more focused on places that do not have universities on their doorstep which I think opens a whole host of really interesting questions. So there's lots to unpick uh, on this issue. And I think the issue of civic role of the universities will only increase in prominence um, as, uh, you know, over the next few months and years. Levelling up is not an overnight um, agenda. This is a sort of 30-year agenda. Well, I think um, I was just reflecting on um, where I spend my time, um, which is mostly in York, but also my um, my father lives over in West Yorkshire in, a, in Burstall, which is a a small kind of town or, or village on the outskirts of Leeds and the different perceptions there. Um, I don't think universities do a good enough job really of um, explaining what they do and how they contribute. But also it, it's if we're thinking about one in two um, young people that are going to university these days, um, th- there is a, a, a big effect that's potentially had if, if the kind of talent of um, a, an area leaves and doesn't come back. And, and why is it not coming back? It's a not, you know, obviously a rhetorical question. And I think just on that, so on the student thing, I think this is really interesting because if you get a, a widening participation university in a place, they often re- recruit mostly from the local area. And I think it's... It's a little bit uh, elitist to say those people should stay in the local area. The point of going to a university is to give people lots of life chances, right? We want them to go and work wherever it might be in Toronto or wherever it is. Um, and, and I think we need to make those places economic viable, economically viable so that people from all around the world uh, and the UK want to go and work there. But to say that if you go to university in a place, you should stay in a place, I think is, is, is slightly illogical. Um, Actually, we want people to go, come back, you know, and bring new ideas back to that place. And, and Debbie, this is uh, this is this is a real challenge, isn't it? Because um, you know, not every uh, not every town has got a university uh, nearby. Uh, but yeah, you know, the idea that we're going to be able to um, expand uh, universities to kind of cover you know the local area of every town over the next ten years is probably problematic too. And you know, is this about getting people to leave home and then go back home, or? Uh, you know, expanding higher education into towns or, you know, how do we fix this conundrum? Oh, right. That, thanks thanks for that uh, significant policy challenge there. Jim. I'll, just, uh, I'll, I'll get back to you in two years once I've had the consultation with some experts. Um, I I think, well, OK, yeah, I mean, I think Justine's completely right. You can't kind of, you can't stop people from, from kind of pursuing, pursuing their life dreams. But I think if, you know, I, I especially think if you want to significantly widen participation in higher level study, um, which need not necessarily be at degree level or at a university, of course. Um, you do need to kind of make lots of different options available. Some of that's going to be digital online. Some of that's going to be um, local. And it was interesting to see this morning that um, the Department for Education has just put out a new call for um, bids for institutes of technology. And these these are these are potentially quite an interesting concept. I mean, we've, we've, we've they've been around for a few years, although they've not 
received an awful lot of kind of policy thinking, but these are basically kind of collaborations between further and higher education institutions and local industry focused on the delivery of higher level technical skills. Um, and, you know, that seems to be where there's potential for growth. It seems to be the kind of the potential for developing skill sets that could then serve local areas um, rather than kind of, I guess, going off to not, well, I guess, no longer read the Iliad at Oxford because they, they're taking that out of the curriculum, aren't they? But, um, you know, to, 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 you know to, to do something useful. And of course, you wouldn't ever say, well, only some sort of people should do that sort of study and only some sort of people should do the other sort of study. And inevitably, because of sort of social social selection, it's, it, there's always going to be that gap, you know, and, and we'll continue to work on, on addressing that. But I think, the, you know, it, it's it's about kind of diversity of provision in as many, you know, that touches as many people and places as possible, isn't it? Pete, is it, is it possible that, you know, in some cases, um, people that live in areas believe that, you know, the existence of universities, often in, you know, big cities actually causes harm rather than you know you know rather than good you know that pushing up house prices bringing lots of students into the into, into the area and so on yeah, certainly. And I think it's kind of when, when there are, is a shortage of housing, as there is in most places, there's that kind of them and us attitude comes along. Um, and you see, you know, perish the thought, people having fun and, um, you know, um, contributing financially to the city. I, I also think you need to think about students more broadly, as, as we often do. But you know, and think about the value that um, having provision close by and um, gives to commuting students. Um, but again, I I I I think um, universities do themselves a disservice by not um, being explicit about how they impact the community. Uh, children round here where I live get brilliant access to um, sporting facilities at the University of York. Uh, there's a great thriving futsal league, for example. Um, there are some issues about the cost of that and people being priced out. You know, local groups don't always get the opportunity to um, to use the sporting facilities um, you know or or, or they, they can't access it um, for because you know the students are using it all, all the time sort of thing and they've been promised as part of planning applications that it'll be a whole community resource so yeah there are niggles um, and uh, that but they can be ironed out I just think along with um, you know volunteering in schools which uh, happens a lot and a lot of kind of uh, initiatives where for example law students do clinics for local people and you know th- there's there's a big impact that can happen um, but it just needs to be resourced and needs to be seen as an important aspect and it does get lost in the noise sometimes. And, and Justine, this question of resources is, is crucial, isn't it? I mean, we're obviously recording on, you know, day one of industrial action across the sector. Lots of people are concerned about burdens on the sector and lots and lots of things to do. I guess, you know, part of the question is, you know, is there funding available for already fairly stretched institutions to be doing lots more of this kind of civic engagement, civic work? Or is it about, you know, doing things differently? I think it's absolutely about doing things differently. So I think it's interesting, as we've been talking, we've, we've been primarily talking about teaching and primarily the undergraduate post-school model avenue of 18-year-olds going to university. And actually, I think there's a couple of points, isn't there? One, this isn't for universities to do on their own, right? This is about collaboration. This is about places coming together and looking at where what the gaps are in their economies, what the strengths are and how they can all work um, together to do that. This is absolutely about collaboration in place. It's not just about teaching, it's about research as well. So how can universities be drivers of innovation in place and doing that um, with 
other bodies, um, supporting local industrial strategies, and also about, as you said, different models of delivery. You know, Deborah touched on digital, talked about lifelong learning, um, ongoing learning, you know, apprenticeship, a whole range of different things, I think. But it will require, you know, you've got teaching, learning, and then this sort of other stuff on the side. Um, and lots of universities have put that at the centre um, of their thinking, you know, Nottingham being a great example with a university without borders. And um, there's lots of other universities thinking about this, but it, it it will require a change in priority. It can't be something that's done on the side. It, 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 it's how does our teaching and our research support the local economy? And, and that, that requires a mindset change, a different way of funding. You know, universities aren't going to go open up in, in cold spots, um, you know, unless there's, there's, there's funding there. Debbie, and, and, and th- th- this, th- th- given that, you know, obviously the you know, ge- geography really does matter here. Um, of course, FE colleges would say they're central to their local community. And to some extent, this is an agenda that says higher education institutions are central to, you know, whichever local communities they are nearby. But but don't we need at some point to take a step back and say and look at the coverage of the institutions that we have across the country and, and try and identify, you know, the kind of towns and places who right now are really poorly served by either bit of the kind of tertiary sector? I, I think FK did that. Um I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't pinpoint the exact year, but I mean, the, certainly <laughs> it was, it was in the era of David Willits. Uh, you know, the Spice Girls were in the charts. Like, it was, you know, the, <laughs> there was, there was actually, there, there exists in the, in the kind of archive of, of higher education policy internetry, a, a map of cold spots. And so you get places like, I think, you know, um, you know, like, you know, seaside coastal towns, for example, are particularly poorly served. Um, and, and, under, and I think understanding that, that said, I think, it does it it does underestimate perhaps the impact of online and digital opportunities to learn and um and actually kind of em- employer employer led kind of training and, and learning as well so i suppose the question is though you're asking really is is if you need an institution to sort of take responsibility for an area then how do you how do you cause that to happen um and I don't, I think, you know, Justine will have kind of insight about, about the kind of processes by which institutions think strategically about where they're going to kind of position themselves and, and what, why, why it might make sense to do so. But um, I don't, yeah, I, mean, I suppose the kind of corollary question is, is there is there a role for government in kind of, or a regulator in saying actually someone needs to take this on and who's going to do it and making that happen? Um, I think publishing the data is probably a good start. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't love the idea that somebody would say no, no one's looking after these guys, you know. <laughs> and, you, and, you, you do it, Nottingham, you know. <laughs> and, and Pete, one of the things I keep coming back to is that in the value for money research that I was involved in a couple of years ago, you know, if you asked students what is the what is what is bottom of their priority list for their. Um, you know their contribution to the university's budget to be spent on is it is this kind of civic uh, stuff and and you know to be to be fair we, we are in a system where students individual you know loan vouchers are by and large used to fund the system why is it that you know that money should be spent on stuff other than you know the actual students or the actual research contracts that have been purchased uh, I think that um, it's critical for uh, students to engage in their local communities to, to to learn about the world. I think if you look at some of the issues that we have on campuses uh, to do with uh, free speech, which you might have heard of, Jim, and uh, other issues like that, they're, they're all to do with um, them being uh, the, the, the students who are um, triggered, uh, etc., uh, are by and large in that space because they're not encountering other cultures they're not encountering people outside of their university bubble Um, and there are other uh, issues that arise like when you have your library that's open to the 
to everyone, not just university students, particularly around A-level GCSE and other times in, in the UK, that that can cause fractious um, kind of interactions between uh, local people and uh, and the university. Um, so I, I, I take the point about fees being paid, but I also think there is a, a, a huge value to being part of a community uh, on, in so many domains. And some people do this. I mean, you mentioned libraries, you know, Worcester's um, a great example, isn't it? They've got community library um it's open to everybody, uh, school children. It, you know, it's not seen as a university asset; it's seen as a as, as a civic asset. Um, and I think you know, th- th- there's lots of good examples around that. Um, you also, don't forget, you know, universities are you, know, you hear the phrase anchor institutions a lot. Um, but in Leeds, for example, all of those anchor institutions have come together and looking to how they can drive. Um, you know, economic uh, benefit to the place through their procurement, through their supply chain, through working together better. So th- this is a really multifaceted um, uh, issue, isn't it? Um, both as employers, as researchers, as teaching. And, you know, the funding point, devolution, there is actually very little from a skills base that is being devolved um, at the moment. So, you know, the government talks about levelling up, but, but, but what is it? What are the levers that, that places have are actually very few and far between. And that's something that, you know, needs to be addressed, I think. Hello, it's Jim from the team. Uh, the Secret Life of Students 2020. It's our student experience conference where we'll be doing student experience differently. 19th of March, London, Mermaid Centre. Uh, you've got to be there. Um, it's all about doing the student experience differently. We're going to bring together research and intel and review everything we learned about students in 2019 and ask what that means for government and regulators and universities and their students' unions. It's about getting beyond the stale debates and case studies and rethinking the student experience, uh, bringing together experts and sector leaders and managers as well as student leaders and student union managers to forge a new agenda for students. What does that mean? Well, uh, we'll look at what the new government and the associated regulatory agenda mean for students. We'll take a look at what major changes to funding, the TEF and the National Student Survey could mean for universities and their student unions. Uh, If Generation Z is a generation that treasures fairness, We'll think about how we can respond to strengthen students' rights, how teaching and learning could be changing to adapt to 2020's busy students, and we'll have a think about what student influence and partnership mean in a world of big data. Uh, We'll also ask how we might get beyond the reductive, endless circular debates on free speech and build a culture of democratic engagement on campus. We'll find out what happens when you listen to students on their own terms, and we'll explore what safety means to students and what safeguarding really means. Uh, It's going to be great, an essential event for anyone working on policy and delivery for students. To find out more, you want wonky.com forward slash events, where you'll find details of speakers, the agenda, and details of how to get your ticket. Cool. Now, next up, Universities UK has released the results of some research it's commissioned from Comres into how people who've passed through the higher education system view the admissions process. Yes, that's right. Reviews of admissions are like buses. You wait for ages and then two come along at once. So uh, the first one is UUKs. Pete, what's going on here? So uh, UUKs, it's it's all part of the uh, Fair Admissions Review, uh, and this Comres poll will play a part of that review. Um, The the poll showed that 70% of recent applicants, so they managed to get 1,500 British adults to respond. Um, They'd all applied to higher education uh, between 2015 and 2019, so it's over a period of time. Um, 70% uh, thought the current process fair, uh, 12% thought it was unfair and the rest didn't have anything to say on the matter um of of, of, why people accepted an offer 
Um, it was because of the course offered. It was because of the location of the provider, which I suppose is relevant to our last discussion, and the reputation of the institution, which is relevant to our first discussion. Um, also, there, there was something about um, within the unfair responders uh over a third of those uh, found that unhelpful careers advice was an issue uh, and just under a third uh, were focused on um, concerns about how long it took to navigate the system of application. Uh, so there, there was some quite interesting but not massively surprising elements that came out of that. Yeah, Justin, it's, uh, you know, is, is, uh, does, is, 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 has PQA's time come, do you think? Is this, you know, is this the... Maybe it, it was interesting, wasn't it, uh, around the widening participation imperative actually um on that 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 63 percent of people i think who are first in family for example were in support of that um and so there's certainly an agenda there isn't there around you know um talks about bame students about first in family um people from disadvantaged groups in general will, would prefer that so maybe that will be the catalyst that will will nudge it over the line yeah debbie i mean the the, the U- university uk's focus in the report on you know, poor careers advice, I thought was really interesting because you can see what they're trying to do. But, you know, loads of our access and participation spend, you know, at the moment is funneled through, you know, the tuition fee subsidy, largely because of that fiscal illusion. But, you know, presumably Universities UK runs the danger of, you know, a kind of post-orga funding settlement where money is re-centralised and given to to schools' career services. I mean, it's very hard to argue with that case, although I suspect that the the whole chestnut about robbing Peter to pay Paul kind of pops up at this point. Um, so, I mean, and it's it's not strictly careers advice, is it? It's about navigating university admission systems. I mean, so obviously, it's about the kind of ability of, of careers advisors, you know, those those that are left, or, or I guess teachers, to explain how to do university admissions in a way that's going to kind of get you where you need to go. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that that's a sort of known problem, isn't it? And the kind of and, and the wider problem, of course, being about kind of university choices and, uh, you know, alternatives to university and uh, career career options and, and all of that. And, and schools are just notoriously just desperately underfunded in that area. Um, universities, I think, do a fair amount to try and mitigate some of that. But of course, at that stage where you're kind of just navigating the system, it's... Um, you know, there's, there's obviously a kind of competition for students dimension. I think I, what I hope, I suppose, that I see from the Universities UK review is a, a kind of a look ahead to the um, a sort of changing dynamic where the there are actually, you know, there's not competition for students to the same degree where, you know, the sector is expanding because, of course, that's what the next decade, you know, and all being well will, will look like. Um, and I think the question about fairness in admissions, the, you know, the calculation changes when it's not, when you're not talking about a sort of scarcity of students or, or indeed a scarcity of, of, of university places potentially. Um, and then you've got the, you know, you got, and then you've got that kind of question nested within, which is about access to selective universities and um, issues around things like contextual admissions and the ability of students here from a WP background to, well, to, to navigate the system to, and to be kind of accurately represented to the universities that they might attend. Um, and I suspect that it won't be as simple as sort of saying, oh, well, we're all going to switch to PQA now. It won't be, you know, what UCAS proposed in 2012, which was a kind of radical revamp of the system. I suspect that Universities UK fully understands that there needs to be, the the, the, the kind of concept of fairness needs to be appropriate to the context um, that we're in, in the, in, you know, in, in England, in a marketized system, in a, in a, in a kind of potential growth um, environment. And that 
the boffins there will come up with some quite sophisticated thinking about how the system could feel fairer to students and how the, how the system could be less stressful for students. Um, I think that will be the focus rather than saying, should we have PQA or should we not have PQA? Yeah, and, and Pete, what strikes me is that, you know, there's a kind of delicious simplicity to, you know, the kind of old admission system, which is all focused on, you know, the kind of currency of tariff points. And, and, and so you can understand, I think, why people grab at PQA as a, as a simple solution to, a, to what they regard as a simple problem. But the world is much more complicated now, isn't it, in terms of both what we're looking, what, what institutions are looking for in students and, you know, the diversity of choice and so on. Yeah, it is complicated, but people expect it to be very simple in terms of processes. So, you know, it used to be difficult to to do lots of things, and now it's very easy with technology and, you know, online and et cetera, et cetera. I, I think um, one of the issues as well is is kind of blaming it uh, on, on schools and careers advisors is um, there is that there have historically been issues there where people have been dissuaded to apply for university because of a particular characteristic they hold. So it's so a way back in the, in the midst of time, I did a project. Uh, with AIM Higher, which was looking at why disabled students weren't applying to university. And the biggest barriers they encountered were parents, um, their teachers and their carers who dissuaded them from the start. That that kind of uh, place is not for you. You'll never make it there. You'll not do this. You'll not do that. So I, I think that's a, a long-standing historical thing that, that we've got to overcome. But if you listen to people talking about university applications and they they, they kind of outline how you do it, we may think it's, uh, it's kind of simple within the bubble um, but it, it certainly isn't perceived as such um, and, and also for such a very transformative life-changing but very expensive experience there's a lot of thought that, that people need to put into it and they need to be able to make an informed decision I think um, which they don't always get the capacity to do in as Debbie pointed out a chronically underfunded education system. But on that I mean actually this, this is interesting isn't it because on this complexity point the, the, the kind of foundational premise of these reviews is that there is an admissions system. And what they mean is UCAS and, and UCAS's processes. And of course, there's absolutely nothing stopping any university from saying, you know, and, 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 and a number of people do, not that many. But what, what's being described is, 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 is application through the UCAS system. Um, rather that, you know, anyone can kind of approach university and say, can I, can I come to your university? And the university can say, sure. You know, the university will have its own systems and, and that, that does potentially create more complexity. But particularly where there is no cap on student numbers and a, a growing number of students and universities can kind of expand to the extent that they want to. Um, you know, why do, you know, do we need such elaborate processes? Isn't it, isn't it just a matter of a student kind of being, I know, on a, you know, there are, there are apps kind of coming down the pipeline that we know of that students will, you know, literally kind of, you know, look at a few different universities and then just hit apply on a button and just fill in some kind of key information and job done. Or indeed linked to the, what we we're talking about earlier, I suppose, you know, the point about, um, there being lots of different choice and lots of different options um, for students. Um, there's, there's the apprenticeship model, there's degree apprenticeships, there's, there's, there's two-year degrees potentially. What we're talking about again is is that three-year undergraduate model and actually people are looking at rolling admissions, different points of admission throughout the year, um, you know, and I think it, it linked back to that civic role, you know, this, this will need to change because your actual student body will change um, as well. So the, the, the it's it's more complicated, isn't it, than just revamping the system to, to, to continue to recruit lots of 18-year-olds. Important though, that is. Now it's time for Yes, But Does It Correlate? Here to set this week's correlation question is Wonky's associate editor, David Kernahan. Hello and welcome to a Yes, But Does It Correlate? overseas recruitment special. What if the real points-based immigration system were the friends we made along the way? This week we're looking at international acceptances via UCAS, 
Do the same providers have large numbers of students from the non-UK EU as from the rest of the world? Or is there another pattern? Or does it correlate? So remember when, um, way back in the midst of time, when uh, I just posted the Brexit referendum, which seems uh, an age ago, um, we looked at this. I think the average, it's about 5%, isn't it, of EU students um, in the UK, um, fairly focused uh, across a few universities. So I would say that there is no correlation. I'm going to say there is a modest correlation. Not because I have a rationale. <laughs> oh, that's just that's just sitting on the fence. <laughs> yeah, because 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 I need I need to sit on the fence on this one. I, I I don't know. I don't know the answer. I I would say there's absolutely no correlation. I don't know why. I've got no <laughs> idea. I suppose if you've got large um, international efforts going on, you're not focused as strongly on um, on EU numbers. And I think people haven't had the chance to think about many things, including where EU recruitment will um, will land or will be. And the answer is that it does, kind of, correlate. R squared is not 0.58. But that lowish number should tell you that there's something else going on. Broadly, the Russell Group and some pre-92s do much better on recruiting international students, but there's much less difference between providers on EU students. For instance, in the 2019 cycle, Coventry University recruited 1,205 students from the EU, but only 200 from further afield. Nearby Warwick recruited 1,205 non-EU students, plus a further 700 from the European Union. Data is from the UCAS 2019 end of cycle report, and where the data doesn't exist, I've not plotted it. And finally, the Office for Students has released a briefing about the NSS examining the variation in satisfaction between students with different characteristics. Debbie, what's going on here? Uh, so, Insight Brief, uh, looking at change, uh, controversy and correlation in, uh, possibly not the last one, in the, three C's. In the NSS. The, the classic three C's. The, the three C's um, in 2018-2019. In um, so, there's a, little bit of, there's a little bit of preamble about, you know, what is the NSS? And, and I think it's, some of this is about it's people who, who might have been living under a rock for the last 15 years and who don't know what the NSS is. Um, and there's a little bit, I think, and there's a little bit of kind of, uh, as, as I think um, you and DK wrote a monkey this morning, uh, Jim, kind of maybe kind of softening the ground for thinking, about do we roll out the NSS to all years? Should we have it earlier in the cycle so that um, students who might be kind of unhappy um, and, and, and planning to leave their course can, can fill it in and we can kind of capture some of, the, some of that, that disgruntlement and understand it a bit better? Um, the thing that caught my eye particularly was uh, this new methodology wherein they've been able to establish uh, benchmark data um, for relating to specific student characteristics in which they exclude other kind of student characteristics that might affect uh, variation in student satisfaction. So they're able to say with a kind of reasonable degree of certainty that um, when, for example, part-time students say that they don't feel so much a, a community that they're kind of coming in below where you'd expect them to be, given all the other kind of things that are going on with part-time students. Um, so the kind of key findings were uh, students with disabilities were, were, were tended to kind of come in below benchmark on satisfaction with course organisation and management. Um, as I said, uh, part-time students on um, sort of sense of community and and um, and feeling kind of that their student voice was recognised. So those, those sort of student voice type questions tended to come in below benchmark, which which makes sense, but obviously kind of does does indicate a, a potential point of intervention for universities and student unions. Um, and particularly interestingly, um, black, Asian and minority ethnic students uh, coming in well below benchmark on perceptions of fairness in marking and assessment and in the question staff have made the subject interesting. And this picks up on 
information that we already knew about uh, from the Happy Advanced HE uh, student experience survey, which finds quite significant differences in the responses of Black, Asian, minority ethnic students to white students around a whole host of, of kind of learning and teaching um, measures um, and kind of perception that, that sort of staff are interested in them, that, that kind of the, that they and, and, that, and that sort of thing. So I think it's all it's all it's all very experimental. Um, it, it certainly warrants further further investigation, but. Um, but it doesn't, it, it, you know, it, it, it doesn't, it's not so distinctive from what we know already as to be, as to be completely kind of outlandish. Pete, one of the things that me and DK have said on the site this morning is in some ways it's extraordinary that this is, you know, the first time in all these years that we've had, you know, kind of an attempt at proper national analysis of the numbers. Yeah, um, I, I, I liked that piece I, I read this morning and I thought the, the key point for me was about um, what, what, what resonated the most was about uh, you know, kind of voices being crowded out uh, on particular courses. So um, that 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 was really interesting and intuitive. And and many of the institutions I've worked with or for are very reluctant to um, over survey students as they perceive it, because NSS is king. But what that sh- what what showed there is uh, is you know the, the reluctance to speak to people and hear from them about what their their difficulties are. And we've seen a lot of press coverage this week about people whether they can physically access their lectures or whether they can you know even enter the buildings or their classes uh, for which they're meant to learn uh, from. But also that there. There's, a, there's a big issues around digital access uh, and curriculum access, which which may not come out um, in the very narrow banding of, of NSS questions, which which uh, uh, you know miss out some key points. But also do some work with uh, NHS at the moment, and there is a, a great deal of resonance between um, BAME progression uh, and BAME satisfaction in terms of marking. Uh, and in terms of feedback as well. So I don't think that's just within uh, this context of learning. I think uh, throughout medical training, there is a big issue there, um, which needs to be picked up upon. But, you know, your piece on Wonky, which I commend people to read, kind of makes some really key points on that and why we do need to be doing a little bit more than just relying on NSS, although it has had a, a very, you know, significant impact on, on making change happen in universities, albeit very slowly. And, and Justine, isn't this the danger that we, we increasingly we know so much about what students think, but we know increasingly little about why they think it? Yeah, and I think that's an interesting interesting point, isn't it? I suppose it, I agree with what you were saying. It, it is striking that this hasn't been done before. Um, I think for me there were two things. One is is actually the you know the, the very small margin of fluctuation actually in in the main part of the uh, of the survey but also then it's this point isn't it around those themes that we've pulled out um, as you've just been talking are the things that universities need to focus on and understand why to your point Jim so why is it that there's that gap in assessment um, what is it that we're doing how, how is this institutional and how do we address it so it, it's a really useful tool for, for, for governing bodies and for executives isn't it to look at where they need to focus and, and Debbie look, I, I, I mean you, you you've uh, you know you've you, you've been kind of around the edges of and using and advising on the NSS for, for many years now isn't isn't one of the problems that it's a, a tool for competition and, and and actually to the extent to which you know we want institutions to collaborate on understanding some of the reasons why a tool for competition makes that collaboration harder rather than easier um I'd- I, I, I'm not. That wouldn't be my analysis of why the NSS is problematic. I, and I know, I know, it does kind of feed into this sort of student as consumer, you know, satisfaction narrative. Um, for, for me, for me, the NSS is 
you know, reasonably useful as a way to kind of after the fact be like, was that all right then? You know, because, you know, inevitably students are going to have difficult times at different different points and, and they're going to have, you know, di- different issues. And, and you don't expect every student to kind of have their entire university experience be 100% perfect. That's, you know, that's not the goal here. My worry is, is that when the NSS becomes so centralised, um, you know, the sort of the sort of central thing, you know, like as Pete said, you know, the the, the big the big one, you know, the only thing, the king, um, that the other sorts of questions you might ask students, so things like in module surveys, you know, simply replicating NSS questions because it gives you an indication of how you're going to perform the NSS. Yeah, it gives me, you a preview. Yeah. It's a terrible idea because you're then you're not capturing some of the kind of more kind of in-depth, nuanced context subject-led sorts of questions that might be useful, you know, like, did we order the material in the right order? Or, or you know, what, what points in the module, were, you know, did you find that it was, you know, you, you were kind of struggling to understand? You know, you can really engage with the learning side of things, not the experience satisfaction side of things, albeit related to teaching and learning. So I think, um, uh, and as we know, the NSS sort of captures about, I think, about 50% of the variation, you know, of, of the kind of final satisfaction question. So, I think it's really, I think, I think, A, it's a terrible idea to rule out to all years. And, and B, I think there's lots of scope to, and I'm sure, you know, lots of universities do think more carefully about the, what you need to ask students when and how, so that, you know, and, you know, when you get to the NSS, you can be fairly confident that the kind of really knotty issues have been addressed. So that's about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via iTunes or your favourite Android podcast directory. Or you'll find the feed you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast. And if you fancy appearing as a guest on the show, do drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch. So thanks to Justine, Pete, Debbie, everyone at Team Wonky for making it happen behind the scenes. And until next week, stay wonky. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.